0: I'm your host, Jen Ramsey. As a coach with a love for metaphysics, science, spirituality, and strategies that get results, I'll help you step away from self-doubt and create a powerful new story for your life, business, or career. Join me. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Your Freedom Unlimited with me, Jen Ramsey. This week I am absolutely honoured to be welcoming our guest Dawson Church, PhD. Uh, Dawson is the award-winning author of three best-selling books, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter and Bliss Brain. Bliss Brain is his latest book which demonstrates that peak mental states rapidly can remodel our brain for happiness and we all want more of that, that's for sure. Aside from being an amazing writer, Dawson has also conducted dozens of clinical trials to check the efficacy of his work. He's founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to promote groundbreaking new treatments for a range of people, including veterans. He also shares how to apply the breakthroughs of energy psychology to health and personal performance through EFT Universe. So, Dawson, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Jen, I am so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's just, oh, yes, it's an absolute honour, Dawson. And um, I, as we were saying before we went to air, I've just been reading your most recent book, Bliss Brain, and this book is gold. Um, we'll be talking a lot about this as we go today. Um, but I just want to say thank you for being involved in this conversation. And I guess we might just start at um, at a fairly significant juncture in your life. We're not going to wind right back to the beginning, um, but, but a fairly significant juncture in your life in terms of your how you and your wife escaped those incredibly tragic uh, and devastating Santa Rosa bushfires in 2017. Could you, I guess, share with us what that experience was like for you and, and what you learned?
1: Well, I share the, the experience in Bliss brain because the book was focused initially around post-traumatic growth and publishers said, Dawson, don't just be a scientist talking about post money growth research, share your story. So chapter one is my story uncharacteristically, I don't talk about myself and my books very much, but I did in chapter one of this brain. And it was a, a shattering experience, Jen, because it, it just came out of nowhere. We went to sleep. We didn't know anything was wrong. There were no reports of any, any threat. My wife shook me awake at 12.45 AM. I looked at the alarm clock. I saw a glow on the horizon. I walked outside our bedroom toward the deck outside the room. And there was this brush fire racing down the hillside toward us. And I just said to her loud as I could, we're getting out of here right now. And I'm not really a person who screams and yells much about anything, I'm pretty, pretty calm human being. So she got the picture that we were getting out of there. We literally ran through the house, grabbed our car keys, threw on some clothes, and we sprinted out to our car. We lived on a big rural piece of property with a building for our office. We had a storage room there. We had several um, other structures on the the property and we had to actually run toward the fire. As As we got close to the office where our car was parked, this huge, conflagration this tree just lit up behind the office building and I realized that we we were, we're just we were it was a knife edge because the the embers were blowing horizontally across the driveway s- spread by 70 mile an hour our winds and so we jumped in the car and as we tore down this long driveway, my wife looked up through the moon roof because it was hot above our heads and saw that all the branches of the trees above our heads, were on fire. And so we, we got out, we realized after about three miles we were safe and we then um, had to then, that was just the start of this this extraordinary period where we found ourselves staying in a hotel out by the, by the California coast long way away. We were very disoriented for the first few days. Um, somebody the next day was able to get into our area and take photographs of our house because we weren't sure the house had been destroyed. And then we got these photographs the next day, texted to us showing that there was just a concrete slab, ash on top of the concrete slab, and the chimney sticking out, the stone chimney sticking out about, about that. Everything melted, the cars melted, the, the, other, the other cars we had melted, the, the the dishwasher, the refrigerator, everything just melted, all the stuff in the office melted. And so um, we were then just dealing with this sense of, what do we do next? How do we live our lives? Um, it, 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 it is so disorienting. And 5,400 people, uh, their homes were destroyed that one night. So over 5,000 homes in just a few hours burned. And it was a, a huge disaster. 22 people died. Many of them died around us because we were kind of the epicenter of the hottest part of the fire. And so over the next year, as we pulled ourselves back together again, suddenly I wasn't training people in post-traumatic stress disorder treatment. I was one of those people being treated for that. And actually I flew off a week after the fire. I was due to do a presentation, a week-long training in Vancouver, Canada. And I was due to be training therapists in treating PTSD. And I did, I flew off there. I gave a presentation. No one no one cared at that point about my 400 carefully prepared powerpoint slides i just shared uh, the story but we then used all of the techniques that i teach like eft tapping like meditation like therapy and we use them on ourselves and it was so powerful to then have our own trajectory of post-traumatic growth so i talk about that in the first chapter of this brain and then go on from there and talk about neural remodeling that occurs and all the things we can do to become resilient people but that's the way i start the book
0: well Dawson it's incredible and when I read the book I, yeah it was it was incredibly graphic and you you went through so much that's such devastation and being here in Australia we've had our in the last year we've had our own fair share of bushfires and um I've never experienced a fly, fire but I have experienced a flood so I understand uh what that can do and what that does to a community but I think at some level a fire is so much more devastating because it just wipes everything out at least after a flood there's still some structures there but after a fire, it's just incredible. So I think your return from that is is incredible. And I I guess I'd like to talk with you more about this idea of post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress, because I think, and and how we can decline from that. But I guess before I do that, um, I had one question I wanted to ask, is something that I talk about a lot in my work is this idea that um, we are the creator of our reality versus the victim of our circumstances. That's easy for me to say here in the cool, calm light of day, very different when you are, you know, when you've experienced such high level devastation, could you, I guess, share with me your views on that? And, and did you, do you feel that that, that that really is still a, a truth for you after having experienced such an, a, a devastating experience?
1: Yeah, well, my previous book, Mind to Matter is all about that and how our brains literally act as transceivers of universal reality which it then which they then create all around us and the whole model that that consciousness is in the brain is incorrect consciousness is is in the field the universal energy fields and then we our brains literally are transducers of that consciousness and we then create the reality around us both inside of our bodies like we create stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline by negative thinking. We create positive hormones and neurochemicals by positive thinking. And so all kinds of things happen inside of our bodies, but there's really interesting evidence showing that um, we literally are able to affect all the matter around us, the four fundamental forces of physics are all influenced by human intention. Now that doesn't mean there's a straight line correlation that if I think this bad thought, that bad thing happens. But what I talk about in mind to matter is that we participate in universal energy fields. When we meditate, we let go of our local reality and when we do that, letting go of local reality and tuning into non-local reality, our brains function very, very, very differently. And so in mind to matter, I talk about creating your own reality in the sense that you then tune in to those non-local fields, and then you feel very different. And what you desire and intend at the level of local reality is very different. Like off the fire, the couple of days afterwards, we were staying at this hotel on the coast, and we were totally disoriented. I woke up and I said to my wife, we need to do something immediately. We need to meditate right now. <laughs> it was almost like we had a desperate need to find our center again. And so we sat up in bed and we spent about an hour meditating. And Jen, this se- seems looking back to me to be really weird but we actually began to crack jokes after that about some of the stuff we lost in the fire that we didn't like. And some of the ways in which the fire had actually helped us, and now of course, the fire didn't was it was a tragedy and a huge loss, but uh, there were also ways in which it it really um, shifted us because we like' we'd been, we'd been in this location on this big piece of property for ten years, and we actually wanted, wanted to move to another city about fifty miles away, and we couldn 't move there because we were just so embedded in this one place. It worked perfectly with the office building, the house, the storage, everything just worked so beautifully well. And suddenly we didn't have it anymore. And we realized, you know, we can actually move now to the place we really wanted to move to for the last five years. So we did that. We moved there and we began to realize that some of the stuff we'd lost, we didn't serve us. We had so many things. We had so much stuff. We had stuff in storage. We had stuff in the house. And so began, we began to just check off lists of things, and stuff we were actually relieved to be rid of. And so that was a very different frame. And so you then begin to create your reality in the sense that you don't see yourself as a victim of circumstances. You start to see yourself as empowered, that you can control your own thinking. You definitely don't have to buy into the mass hysteria going on all around you. You choose your energetic reality. You choose your vibrational reality. And that starts to then manifest around you. And we just literally manifested, not the life we used to have. And people talk about rebuilding after a disaster and putting your life back together again. And we realize, I talk about, in Blitzband, I talk about how that whole idea is really uh, a very limiting idea, self-limiting idea. And we realized we didn't want to recreate our old lives we wanted to create our lives afresh. So we moved to a new new city. We bought things that reserved really served us. Like I used to have, have a collection of vintage cars and they were beautiful. I had an old Rolls Royce. I had two Jensen He sports cars, handmade in, in England in the 1960s. And I had all these beautiful old old cars that were now just heaps of smoldering aluminum and, and steel and burnt rubber and melted stuff on the ground. And, um, I thought, you know, what, do I want another collection of classic cars? I thought, what's much more in alignment with my values is an electric car. Mm. So I bought an electric car. So you rethink yourself and you don't recreate the life you used to have before. You create yourself anew. Why not be doing that all the time? So that's the sense in which our minds create reality. It's not like some kind of magical process where you think about something and it it appears. Although I have to say that does happen with surprise surprising frequency. And uh, one of the long-term studies of meditators in this brain shows how people who meditate actually have much higher percentages of clairvoyance, telepathy, synchronicity, distant healing, all of these kinds of things actually do happen in their lives more frequently. But that's not why we, what we want to do this. We want to be manifesting by first of all, letting go of a small local suffering, conditioned self. And you do that by meditating. You shut down those parts of the brain. And there are several parts of the brain that construct that self, you shut those down. And then you, you, you let your thoughts just drift up and become one with non-local reality. And in non-local reality, there is infinite wisdom and joy and peace and clarity and information and love. And then you just manifest, you just draw all this down and it, it just starts to manifest all around you. And suddenly your local life is full of those characteristics of non-local reality. And so at that point, you may have a fire, you may have a bankruptcy, you may lose your job, you may have a divorce, your, your, your child might get injured. I mean, we, we are like exempt from the, the, the bumps of life, but you are that resilient person and you have a sense of who you are that's far beyond the local self. And the, the image I, I have of this in chapter one of this spring is this amazing image that we got the day after the fire along with the, the, the burned house and the, the chimney sticking up in the middle of the ashes. But what had happened was that when the office burned the filing cabinets burned, the computers burned, the desks burned, everything burned. It was just a pile of ash there. But there was a statue that had been stuffed into the back of a closet about 10 years before. And then somebody had dropped some files in front of it and piled other folders on top of it. And this statue had been forgotten in, in the back of this closet for around a decade. And then everything burned, including all the files in the closet itself and the wood. And that statue, I'm looking at it right now in my office here, was a Buddha, Buddha there, serene and calm. And so there was this Buddha sitting, I'm getting chills just saying this to you now, Jen. It hurts. Image of the Buddha in the ashes. And so I wrote in my blog post that week that just right off the fire, I said, you know, compassion can't be destroyed. Love, altruism, well-being, fire can't touch any of those things. If you have those inside of you, you had them regardless of what happens. So that's the the real you know idea of mind to matter and then you have those qualities inside of you You build a brain like that and then nothing that counts can be taken away so the buddha in the ashes the saint in the ashes is really that metaphor for what you create inside your own reality field
0: how what an incredible story dawson and how incredible in that in that devastation that incredible image of everything that could have survived it was the buddha no mistakes, right? No, that that's just one of the most. And it does, as I read it in the book, and then as you were sharing the story with me just now, yes, absolute chills. And I, I love what you've said there, but it's it's the compassion and the love that survives through everything, through all devastation. So what a what a great uh, reminder for us. And this notion, I also love what you shared there about this notion of creating a new, creating a fresh rather than having to go back. And I know in the book you talk about, you know, you were sort of this, you had that realisation and rather than the craving for the old life, it was this, seeing this as this new opportunity to to build afresh and build anew. And we've, I think I've also just heard you say, we've got that chance to do this every day. We don't need to wait until a devastating event occurs. Um, And one of the things that I often am saying to people in my work is that, you don't need to burn down your old life. I actually use that term, burn down your old life, to create a new reality inside it, inside your current life. So in terms of doing that, you mentioned meditation was a big turning point for you. 48 hours after the fire, you realised you hadn't been doing it and that was your, it was really almost like you're switching yourself back on. I think you said in the book, it's almost you, you came back into your body To and that was a, a very key point of building your resilience. What are the things... What other things did you do at that time to really secure that resilience within yourself? Obviously, you've got a wide array of tools available to you from your work, but what were some of the key things you did to really secure that resilience?
1: Yeah, in my book, Mind to Matter, my previous book, I talk a lot about what you can do. So I have about 30 practices I, I review, especially in Mind to Matter, but in my other books as well. And so obviously, Bliss Brain is very focused on meditation, and then books like the EFT manual are very focused on EFT tapping. And EFT is simply tapping on acupressure points, and so rather than using acupuncture needles, you're using light pressure, fingertip pressure, while you process negative events or thoughts or beliefs. So we definitely used EFT. We definitely meditated every day. I made a commitment to daily meditation in 2000, so I already had many, many years of meditating daily under my belt and I really got serious about meditation around 2009 even more deeply so meditation I think is is a baseline of well-being if you meditate effectively you just start the day feeling good so that the daily meditation is really the foundation of a practice EFT you use when you're stressed during the day so you get a Email that's disturbing, or you have to deal with some kind of problem in your life, something happens that disturbs your well being, you tap to quickly restore that baseline. Other things we used were like time in nature. I remember when I flew to Vancouver to teach that conference, give it a keynote speech, and teach that week long training on PTSD. I remember that it was cold and rainy, and I would literally go to the park and I would take off my shoes and socks and stand in the damp grass. And that's a practice called grounding. There's also time in nature is healing. So I'd walk along the ocean side and just breathe in the sea air. And it wasn't really convenient or easy because it was cold and miserable, but rainy, rainy weather kind of winter weather there but um i just found that time in nature so so healing grounding again feet your feet in contact with the earth is really powerful so um there are many practices like this qigong tai chi and what i recommend people do is that you experiment with ones that work for you because for example doing a 90-minute yoga class isn't going to fit for the lifestyles of some people it'll be perfect for the lifestyles of other people but that 20 minutes of meditation or that hour of meditation in the morning that is something most people can do and will make a huge difference to your health and well-being and so if you experiment with different ones experiment with the different meditation styles and then find the one that makes you feel good And the the way you'll know you feel good. Now, again, in, in my research, I'm hooking people up to MRIs or EEGs or I'm taking saliva swabs and measuring their immune system or their cortisol or their stress hormones. We can't do that for you. But what you can, how you can administer your own medical tests is simply tune in. How do I feel when I ground or do qigong or meditate or tap? And the answer is I usually feel Better. Some practices make me feel really dramatically better, and so you expe- experiment with those thirty practices. Pick the ones that work for you, and then stick to them. It's called a practice because you have to do it every day. The other day, the other day, my uh, my cell phone died, and I I, I thought, oh, my cell phone's died. I wonder why. Well, the why was very simply that I had failed to plug it in the day before and recharge it. <laughs> Meditation is the same way. If you you, you, you know, your cell phone, plug it in every day, recharge it. Meditation, plug it into non-local mind every day. And then you charge your local mind and your local reality with all of those qualities. And then those qualities start to really affect, fill your outer life. So experiment with those practices, but at least use those two: Meditation in the morning, and then EFT throughout the day, and that only takes a minute or two just to do the tapping, and then you restore that sense of well-being. So
0: vital, and thank you for sharing sharing those practices with us. Interestingly, I've done all of those grounding, probably a little less so, but and the tapping I've also found very useful over the years. And it's, as you say, something really very simple and easy to to access. Let's talk a bit a bit a bit more now though about um, meditation. And I think one of the great key messages for me out of Bliss Brain is that you have really uh, developed a, a form of meditation that actually can work relatively quickly for people. Um, you also talk about the, the, the many of us have gone before who've tried all sorts of different meditation practices that may not have worked. And, and that's not really been my experience. I've been meditating on and off for years, trying things that have worked, things that haven't worked so well. Um, but what I love in this is the practicality around the brain. Um, So uh, could you share with us the form of meditation that you feel can sort of switch us in as quickly as we can to that non-local mind, which is where the bliss actually
1: is? Yeah, and what I asked in Bliss Brain was answers from science because there are all these claims about meditation and various schools say well my meditation is really effective or well, mine is like the this one that's headed down from you know the my spiritual master and there, there are all these uh kind of myths around meditation and so I don't, I don't know how to evaluate those claims I, I said what does science say and so what I used over like from t- 1995 to like 2002, 2004, was I played around with different kinds of meditation. I used heart mass, heart coherence method. I experimented with mindfulness. Uh, There is a research done at Princeton starting in the 1960s on, on generating alpha states of the brain. And then I said, okay, what is evidence-based, what techniques work really well. And I, I, I realized there were certain things that were evidence-based and they're mostly to do with somatic sensations, they're to do with your body. And so you can try and meditate by using various mental practices, but try to calm the mind with the mind is really hard and I've never been able to do it. I've never been able to calm my mind. And what I read in the research was that the mind is not designed to be calm. I mean, think about your ancestor a million years ago, a hundred thousand years ago. If your ancestor was sitting there on a log in the middle of the Savannah with her eyes closed in bliss, she's the first person to get eaten by the tiger. <laughs> <laughs> she's bait. <laughs> she's great.
0: she's too calm, she way too calm. Huh.
1: Way too calm. So she got me from the uh, the gene pool, whereas her sister, who is paranoid, suspicious, looking around at everything wrong in the environment, where is that snake in the grass? That paranoid person survives, passes her genes to the next generation, repeat the process with her her children and her children and her children and her children. And now we have a thousand generations of breeding ourselves to be suspicious, paranoid, and negative. It was highly adaptive for our ancestors, except that now, There aren't snakes in the grass. There are no tigers roaming around in our rose bushes. And we have all of these. We have these brains structured to respond to threats and no threats to respond to. So our mind steps in with imaginary ones. And our mind is, the Buddha said, it's the mind that makes us suffer. Um, just all along through spiritual history, you find people talking about the mind as the major impediment to happiness. And so trying to control yourself and meditate with the mind is hard. And so I put together all these somatic body practices, relax this muscle breathe in this rhythm, imagine this kind of image. And we found that when people did this, they dropped into deep states really, really quickly. And I I, I needed a word for it, a name for it. So I called it eco meditation, E-C-O meditation. And around 19, around uh, 2010, I put up a web page with eco meditation, uh, ecomeditation.com. And I didn't think very much of it. I was doing it myself. I was doing a lot of other research at the time. And then one day, my my webmaster came to me and said, "Dawson, do you realize we're getting 10,000 people a month visiting ecomeditation.com? They're just going there, and they're." They're, they're emailing us and saying, I, I did this these seven things that you have on the site and I had this breakthrough experience in meditation. So I then began to research eco meditation and take it a little bit more seriously. If you go there today, there's a new page that's really beautiful with all kinds of resources and some of the research that's been done with the, the method. And so it simply strings together seven evidence-based things. EFT tapping, heart math, mindfulness, some biofeedback, neurofeedback techniques, self-hypnosis in a very, very simple set of seven steps. But they put you deep into meditation reliably without having to calm your mind, which most of us can't do anyway. So uh, that's just the simple way that I I developed it. And then people use it. And then it's the springboard for that very first experience. Uh, One great writer from the 1930s Paul Brunton says it give being in that state gives you a glimpse of the possibilities and so we've been looking for that glimpse and when you have that glimpse of how calm and happy you've become that motivates you to do more
0: yes and how true that is you know it's almost if you like it's the gateway drug to more meditation isn't it <laughs> <laughs>
1: it is your
0: your eco meditation is the gateway drug and i have to say since i discovered it as i was sort of preparing for this interview i've I've been doing your eco meditation and it is you're exactly right because i think that's the big issue and many people that ask me about how to meditate and what to do their the biggest concern is this idea of mind wandering how do i deal with the wandering mind and i was so heartened when i read in the book when you the research by the emory uh, (laughs) university where they said mind wandering is quite normal it's actually and for all of those reasons because of the well i think it's there it's it's the default mode network in the brain but i think the fact is is that when we can suddenly hear mind wandering is normal and it is something that's going to happen to you in meditation but it's okay you can always come back and then use these seven steps in the eco meditation to help you go you know to reduce that that incidence and get into the that bliss state more quickly it's it's really groundbreaking work dawson i'm not sure if you're aware of how significant it is, but as an outsider looking in, who is you know has who has done different forms of meditation, I've done vipassana, sat vipassana meditation retreats, and so on. You know, it's it, your your pathway is I think really timely for right now in terms of when people do need to to calm right down. Um, and
1: well, as we've been researching it too, like we've done one MRI study of meditation already, and so we've done several EEG studies. We've done. Uh, mood studies, anxiety, depression, happiness, and so on, and uh, people's mood shifts dramatically. But the MRI study was absolutely remarkable and when one I sent the results to several neuroscientists to look at the, the, the brain changes and we had one group doing eco meditation for a month, a second group doing a placebo meditation for a month would involve breathing and having thinking about positive imagery and so on. And so the, the, the people doing the, the positive imagery placebo were getting a pretty good intervention, but then they weren't doing the seven steps of eco-meditation. And so um, and these were novices, meditation novices for the most part. They hadn't meditated before or they'd failed. So they did it for a month and we took a second MRI of their brain functionality. And then I, I, I said that, um, that the, the, the two images side by side to several other neuroscientists and got the reactions. And, you know, one of them was, well, let's be, these are really clear to me. He was saying that these are, you know, these, these are Tibetan monks with 10,000 hours of meditation behind them. Uh, you know, Cause are seeing all the characteristic brain changes going on here. They said, actually, they're novice meditators after four weeks. And they have the same patterns of brain function with a shutdown of the default mode network that makes us suffer so much, activation of the brain, region of the brain called the insula, responsible for compassion, gratitude, positive emotions, that was totally lit up in these people after a month. And so literally the triggering functional and structural changes in the anatomy of their brains, and it's only taking four weeks, it's like, unbelievable.
0: Who wouldn't want to do it? Really? That's the question. You know, who, who wouldn't want to do it? When you hear that, and that a neuroscientist looking at that, thinking that it's someone who's, you know, an adept who's done 10,000 hours of meditation. So just fantastic that it's, that it's so available to us. I, I want to also just ask you now, I'd like to talk a bit about this, because uh, this again was a great point that you make in the book about um, the idea of selfing and the fact that we can spend way too much in this default mode network. Could you talk to that a little bit?
1: You know, I really do share that in the book because I want people to not feel guilty about mind wandering and let them know that that's what the brain is designed to do. And evolution has just shaped your brain to do this. And the default mode network is a fairly recent discovery. And it's called the default mode network because your brain uses any unused capacity and defaults to this set of brain regions being active. And so when you're doing stuff, you know, if you're writing an email or singing a song or talking to friends or playing a game or doing your work, whatever you're doing, your brains, parts of your brain that are active are called the task positive network. And so these are regions on generally speaking, the outside of your brain and the outer layers of your brain and the these the sides of your brain. And they're active when you're doing stuff. And then when you stop doing stuff, The default mode network kicks in. And basically, as the activity of the task positive network drops, the activity of the default mode network rises. And I was thinking, you know, if I were Mother Nature, I would have designed human beings so that you default to happiness. Wouldn't it be nice if you defaulted to being in a state of joy and peace and serenity? And unfortunately, it's exactly the opposite. We default to a state of worry. And in that default mode network activity, we are thinking about the past and all the bad things of the past and the future and the potential bad things of the future, which made perfect sense for that caveman 100,000 years ago, she needed to think about the the tiger that almost ate her last week and the tiger that might eat her next week. I mean, that's how she survived. So it made sense for the brain to work that way. But now without any tigers, the default mode network turns on and it involves two brain centers. One is right behind the forehead over here called the mid prefrontal cortex. The other is in the back of the head here, it's called the posterior cingulate cortex. These two parts of the brain turn on And suddenly you can be facing no problems, no threats whatsoever. And when the default mode network kicks in, you suddenly are ruminating about past bad stuff and projecting it into the future and thinking about how things will be bad in the future. And that's what the brain does by default. Mm -hmm. So you let people alone to just relax and not do anything. And they default to depression about their past anxiety about their future, and they're not in the present moment. And so what these Tibetan monks have learned to do, and these studies come from groups of monks who've meditated for 10,000, 20,000, some of them 60,000 hours in their lives. And they are meditation geniuses, they're experts. And the way their brains function is very, very different. And they literally, within one second, they can close their eyes and they can shut down the default mode network And then that part of the brain that governs compassion, the insula is brightly lit up in these 10,000 hour monks in Franciscan nuns who spent uh, 20,000 lifetime hours in mystical union with mother Mary or with Jesus, whatever is common to all religious groups, they have this very, very different type our brain function. So if you know that, I mean, that's that's my big chapter two of Bliss Brain is all about the default mode network. And I think like you, Jen, most meditators reading chapter two of Bliss Brain breathe a huge sigh of relief and say, thank goodness, it's not me. I'm not a defective human being that my mind wanders all the time. I'm not just a, a, a failed meditator because I don't have up self-discipline. It's the way my brain is meant to work It defaults to that state and then here is the training it takes to overcome that tendency. So knowledge is real power when it comes to meditation and science is real power. It gets rid of all the myths around how to meditate and says, here's how you shut down that default mode network when you do and let go that sense of local self, that's when you are able to rise and feel a sense of union with the universe, with non-local self. So the default mode network understanding is key, really to understanding how the brain works and how to then move to a successful meditation experience
0: absolutely it is and this is just to me that the timing of where we're living right now in terms of this beautiful uh connection confluence of science and spirituality and where we can use science to actually as you say check some of these ancient techniques and actually work out why they work um but a, and also how we can perhaps get there more quickly than having to do 60,000 hours of meditation <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't know if I've got that amount of time to do that meditation and to deal with, to deal with the full flow of life, because while we may not be on the savannah with the saber-toothed tiger, the stresses that I think people are feeling, um, you know, can really, really impact them in a, in a particular way. And I have to say a bit of a funny story. I actually, I live in a quite a, a bushy part of, I'm still in a city, but we've got quite a lot of bush surrounding us. And um, I have actually stood on a snake in my living room. So, <laughs> um, and that's just one snake incident. Then, a couple of years later, our dog, I was doing actually a, a video conference with some friends from the US, and uh, I heard my dog barking, and I was like, mm, I can hear Lucy. That bark doesn't sound right. I went out, she had a snake's head in her mouth. So, we still have some of those things here in Australia, but, um, but, Mostly we don't. So, but mostly it's this this general flow of life that we're all needing to, to negotiate. And I think that it's it's techniques and 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 discoveries like yours that are really making the difference. That allow us to know that there is a different there is a different way of of thinking and being. We don't yeah, have
1: you know, if, if you have a genuine emergency, if say, for example, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you open and so you're about to have an accident, being able to swerve and react like that, you still have that ability. If mm-hmm. there's a real threat, if there really was uh, a uh, a bear, or you were camping and there was a bear in the woods or there was a, there was a snake that you had to confront, our uh, our brains were perfectly fine, even if you're a long-term meditator. I mean, when, when my wife and I ran out of that fire, like literally I saw the fire. I didn't say let's meditate. <laughs> I wasn't at all calm. Just the opposite. I, you know, and and, and and we made second decisions. Like for example, she was running out, out, out the, the the house, and she knew in some instinctive way, she had time to put on either a shirt or a jacket, but not both. Wow. She chose a jacket. I was running out I, and I, I, only later on did I realize I was analyzing this in my mind, but my mind was analyzing, do I have time for socks and shoes? And some part of my intuitive brain, that animal brain still responding to threats said, I don't have time for socks and shoes, socks or shoes, shoes. Wow. so you're still able to respond to appropriate threats when you're a calm meditator it's just that you are living as though you're in the jungle all the time
0: that's exactly right and I think that's it it's this idea of how do we not feel like we're living in the jungle and um because we do I think there's there, you know this year of any year this is 2020 as we're recording this and um we are you know it's been a it's been a very difficult year for many many people and continues to be so so how do, we, how do we negotiate all of that? I want to come back to that in a, little, in a little while. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the bliss molecule and the bliss brain cocktail. I just need to ask if you could just explain that briefly to us. I mean, obviously, that's what we're accessing, these incredible chemicals in our brain. Can you perhaps shed a little bit of light on that for us and and I need to tell you that I'm wearing my dopamine earrings to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
1: I mean, that, that research just blew my mind. And the one story I tell is the story of a researcher called Lumir Hamush. And he is the one who discovered this molecule called anandamide. And the way their thinking went, this research team, is they said, we know when people smoke marijuana, they get a dose of THC. And we know that the THC docks with various uh, locations of the brain and makes you feel good. So you smoke marijuana, you feel good because of THC docking with these receptor sites in your brain. Therefore, if our brain has that receptor site, there must be a molecule that our brains produce that has the same chemical composition as THC. And they began with, a search through thousands of molecules and they they just hunted and hunted and hunted and they eventually found the molecule and it docked with those same receptor sites as THC and makes you feel absolutely ecstatic and so they called it ananda anandamide because of the ananda is the sanskrit word for bliss it's this molecule and these monks and these nuns who are modern day mystics they are making huge amounts of these neurochemicals. and Anandamide is just one of them. Oxytocin is another one. That's the bonding hormone, the, 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 the hormone you release when you hold a baby, when, when you make love, when you hug a friend, oxytocin is released. They make large amounts of serotonin and psilocybin, magic mushrooms, docks with serotonin receptor sites. So you're making lots and lots and lots of serotonin. In these meditative states, you make lots of dopamine and dopamine is engaged by cocaine and heroin. The dopamine reward system is what triggers the rush from heroin and cocaine. And ayahuasca has similar properties and MDMA ecstasy and so on. And so one thing that happens, and I talk about this in the middle of the book in chapter five, is that you start to meditate and you use these methods and you have these surges of oxytocin, and then you have these these big floods of anandamide, and then you have increased serotonin and dopamine at the same time. And what many people report after trying eco meditation and feeling the surge of neurochemicals is they are totally and completely stoned. I mean, really. And, and I have a picture in, in the book of St. Francis in one of his ecstatic moments and St. Francis being held by two cherubs and St. Francis is, is just put, passed out in ecstasy. I talk about the, the shakers, the Quakers of early American Christianity, how they would literally shake orgasmically. I talk about the, the molecules in orgasm and many of the same molecules that we experience in human orgasm are there in these bliss brain states. I talk about St. Teresa of Avila who talked about God in her writings as the mystical lover. I mean, they were literally having these orgasmic states. Ramakrishna in India in the late 1800s would literally freeze in samadhi in this trance-like ecstasy, sometimes for days. And so we know that people experience these states of such extraordinary pleasure driven by anandamide, serotonin, dopamine, and all these pleasure chemicals in their brains. And so that's what's happening now. Millions of people are meditating that, that didn't use to meditate. Huge numbers are using eco meditation, getting into these elevated emotional states. And Jen, they are so pleasurable. One of the challenges we face is it's hard to explain to people who haven't experienced them just how good they feel. So that's why you need to try them. One woman wrote to us uh, Three years ago tony her name is tony tombleson and you'll find her her statement on ecomeditation.com. and she said i tried other meditation methods i'm totally burned out on parenting on life i'm in high cortisol high stress 99 of the time when i sat down to do your seven steps of eco meditation my mind said to me tony every other meditation method you've tried has failed you'll never succeed at this either and then i just did the seven steps And on step three, tears of joy began to flow down my cheeks. I was in ecstasy. I finally was where I wanted to be. We have so many testimonials like that of people who tried it and found themselves in that ecstatic state. And then the cool thing is these are drugs. These are addictive. And you don't need somebody to tell you, remind you to go meditate tomorrow you are as hooked on all of that serotonin and dopamine and anandamide as you would be with a hefty dose of cocaine, heroin, MDMA, THC. You've literally got all these things in your brain at the same time. So one of the things we have to train people in is getting there is easy. Do the seven steps. Pretty much everybody gets there in a few minutes. We have to help you get back down again. And so you'll know that if you've listened to any of my eco-meditation tracks, you'll know the last few minutes are, okay, feel your body, feel your hands, feel your feet, look around you, count how many light fixtures there are in the room. Count, uh, notice the biggest triangle in your environment? What's the smallest red object around you? We have to orient people here and now. If we don't, they're walking around totally spaced out. So it's great to enter that elevated emotional state of that Tibetan master. And then you have to be able to check your PayPal balance. You have to be able to Cook for your children. you Run have that to be
0: meeting. To do whatever it do. is you need to do. Yeah,
1: yeah. so we, mm-hmm. you have to bring yourself back to ordinary, real, ordinary reality.
0: But when you come back, then everything's different. I think your experience of your your reality is different, isn't it? That's
1: that's the amazing thing. I used to think that people who meditated like that were very selfish because they were just you know how is that helping end world hunger? How is it helping in climate change? How is that being a productive member of society? And it turns out that. The studies that I show in in brain, measuring what people do after they reach these elevated emotional and mental states is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. One 10-year study of executives by a big consulting company called McKinsey showed that after they emerge from that flow state, they're five times as productive. They're doing in one day what would have taken them five days. Another big military study in the US showed that their ability to solve complicated problems goes up fivefold after they've been in these states. Their creativity, like the artist, the musician, the scientist, the inventor, the creative, their creativity doubles after being in these states. So you aren't just feeling good as uh, an escape from your reality. You are in a position to change your reality effectively once you emerge into your family. Your job, your regular life—that's the beauty of it.
0: That's it, and I completely agree with you, Dawson. And that's a been my experience since I really committed, as you know, as you said, to a daily practice. Everything has changed. And sometimes people say to me, "Well, I'm, I'm going to give up. I'm not getting what I want out of meditation." And my comment always to them is that it's a cumulative approach, and it's not transactional. You know, it's something that just because I put an hour in here doesn't mean I'm going to get an hour out there just like that. But over a period of time, this cumulative approach of, as you say, accessing the non-local consciousness, feeling better within ourselves, then that allows us to shape our daily lives in a much, much vastly different way. And that was actually one of my other questions was that I know later on in the book, you explain how, how meditation does make us feel good in the moment. But then you explain later in the book how it can change the structure of the brain long term. Could you speak to that for, for a moment?
1: those stories in the the book and that evidence that research in the book is absolutely remarkable and i use this case history of this australian tv host called graham phillips and he learned about meditation wanted to go on an eight week mindfulness course but he was a tv journalist so he decided to actually document the whole journey of learning mindfulness meditation and so he took his whole tv crew into an advanced university lab And he had extensive brain analysis done, high resolution MRIs mapping every single region of his brain, along with a whole bunch of cognitive tests. And so they had that as a before starting point before he began to learn meditation. He then spent his eight weeks. He felt calmer. He felt much more able to handle stress after just two or three weeks. He was a changed person by eight weeks, he went back into the lab and they found that parts of his brain had actually grown by three or 4% in only eight weeks. But the part of his brain that grew the quickest was in the center of his brain, there's a little group of neurons and its job is to regulate emotion in different parts of the brain, regulate fear, anxiety, stress, depression, all of the things that rob us a peace of mind. And that is a C-shaped group of neurons neural neural pathways called the dentate gyrus. And they measured his dentate gyrus and they found that in eight weeks it had grown by 22.8%. It was bigger by almost a quarter. So that's how quickly meditation can grow crucial parts of our brains. And I talk about the four networks of the brain that are essential to happiness. And emotional regulation is number one. If you cannot regulate your negative emotions, it's very hard to have a happy life. If you can regulate your negative emotions, you likely will. And you can grow that part of your brain in eight weeks by 22.8%. So those are some of the stories of showing how quickly your brain is remodeling itself for resilience, creativity, and joy.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I have to say, um, my background has been that I've come from someone who's experienced, ang- I've been someone who's experienced anxiety. But the big turnaround came for me when I really integrated medication, meditation into my life and with a range of other sort of, you know, spiritual practices. But the key thing, I think, was this ability to emotionally regulate. So while I haven't been hooked up to the MRIs, I can absolutely attest to that myself in terms of how it's how it's changed everything. And I, again, it's this, this notion of emotional regulation. We can then live happier lives and be more focused on what it is that we truly want or how we can truly Can contribute to society and make the difference that we want to make because i think sometimes our fear can hold us back in in incredible ways stop us from doing those things that are really most important to us
1: we all know people who have poor emotional regulation and so they're in traffic and they get all upset with the other drivers they're in the store they have to wait in line they get triggered by that their children trigger them their parents trigger them their colleagues trigger them words trigger them television news triggers them other stories trigger them and you know, just living in a brain like that where you're being triggered emotionally by all these inputs means there's no place for you. There's no place for serenity and calmness. There's no place to create the life you want. And so it's essential. That's why again, these, there are these four networks that we need to develop in our brain and they literally all grow. And the part of what, what I call the enlightenment circuit of the brain that the first one we absolutely have to develop is that emotional regulation one. Then all of those minor annoyances in life just don't bother you anymore and you're basically a calm human being
0: that's it and from that basis you can then build an incredible life that's that's where your opportunity really lies i've got a question here um you know with all of these discoveries and the research you've done to test this effectiveness this effective effectiveness of meditation do you think we're on the cusp of evolutionary change as human beings given these breakthroughs given what we know now could we possibly be seeing a big change happening in our society in the next little while?
1: I'm actually looking at that in a big perspective as in a maybe a 500 year perspective. And I, I'd look at it in a little bit of a shorter perspective between 10 and hundred years at the end of this brain. But I'm we're re- working on a book in the next couple of years looking at it in a much bigger perspective, historical perspective, and it looks it's really interesting when you zoom out at what's going on in collectively in the societies and our brains. At the end of the book, I, I talk about how we are in the middle of a huge, huge jump to a higher level of well-being. And my friend and colleague Jean Houston wrote a book called Jump Time. She points out that we evolve not in a, in a just a, a slow upward movement like this. We evolve in jumps, and then there are plateaus another jump and we're gonna jump now to radically improved human well-being. And it's very easy again to get caught up in the news cycle and, and lose sight of the fact. So I, I had about 200 studies to choose from when I wrote the last chapter of this brain and I picked about a dozen of them. And it shows that we are in a period of unprecedented human flourishing that things like female literacy have increased enormously in the last 50 years. Human rights since World War II have been improving, not always steadily, not always in a straight line, but, but, but they have been improving. Um, the wars between great powers are declining. Human wealth, the average human being is three times as wealthy globally as he or she was in 1980. Human lifespan has doubled in the last century and will be increasing dramatically in the years to come. And there, it is statistically, there's just figure after figure after figure, data, 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 data that we are improving. Now, does that mean that we don't have problems? We you know we, global warming is a massive problem. But if our brains have five times the ability to solve complex problems, we'll find solutions. I mean, just go, go Google the Trillion Tree Project. And essentially, if we had tri- a trillion more trees on, on the planet, we are, we would bring our carbon down to the level of pre-industrial revolution levels. There um, are now carbon farms where there are big machines that are literally in operation today, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and then producing things like furniture out of it. So we human beings are capable of unbelievable creativity. We can tackle problems like climate change, we can tackle problems like poverty, racial inequality, income inequality, we need to tackle these things. But if you look at the trajectory of human well-being, we're in this this jump time in which we're becoming far more compassionate, far wealthier, far healthier than our ancestors could have ever dreamed of. So yeah, that's the the the, the place we are in, in in human history now. And I'm gonna really explore that in the next book because I think that I've kind of given you a, a little picture of it at the end, the very last chapter of this brain, but then where do we go from here? And I'm gonna be looking at things like brain evolution over the last few, few centuries and so on. And uh, really trying to, because you know, as a science writer, I have to understand all the science and it's really hard to understand. And I've explained it then clearly so the average human being can grasp it. And I wanna do that now for the next phase of human evolution. Mm, fantastic.
0: And what a great fresh perspective Dawson to say that we're in a time of human flourishing because many people, if they were to watch the evening news or to look at what's going on in politics, and as we record this today, the US election is on a knife edge. um, Many people would say that the world's, you know, going to hell in a handbasket, that there are lots of terrible things going on. So it's really great that you do see that, you know, that there's this bigger scope here that we can start looking at. And I think that's how fantastic that that's your next book we'll certainly have to have you back again to talk about that when that's um when that's published because it sounds like it'll be really interesting for you to share that with us so that brings me to my next question then is is that you know we are we even though you can see that bigger picture and i'm, I'm really pleased you've shared that with us people in a day-to-day sense perhaps are feeling that 2020 has been a very difficult year for them with covid 19 still impacting many many people globally with the US election causing such turmoil and other issues that have happened in in your country this year. um, What would you say or what would you say that people should do in these times to actually to feel a little happier and to to build their resilience? What what are some tips you would have for them?
1: Self-care and self-love is essential and you do it by unplugging from all of that. You don't become a monk, you don't try and live in a cave, you don't try to Pretend it doesn't ex- all exist and is a problem, it it needs to be confronted and understood. All these global problems are real, but focus on things you have leverage on in your own local life, mm-hmm. in your own local world. What can you do to make things better? I, I w- went to I had to get a, a blood test in hospital today, and I was there uh, in line paying for my blood test, and I thought, and I know I thought, you know, there's this woman with a mask on behind me, this plexiglass barrier. And uh, she's just processing hundreds of patients every day. What can I do to make her life a little bit, bit easier? So I noticed she had on um, a really interesting shade of nail color, na- nail coloring. And so I, I told her how beautiful her nail coloring looked. Um, and so we had a little conversation about that. She just brightened up. So can I change the results of the US presidential election? No, I cannot. Can I bring a smile to her masked face? (laughs) Yes, I can. I, you know, I just, as you go through your day, do deliberate acts of kindness, plan to just be scattering good emotions in your your life, all throughout your life. I, I have a chapter in Mind to Matter about the whole concept of emotional contagion. And these brilliant researchers took the the model of infectious disease, applied it to emotions and found that our emotions are highly contagious. In one study, they found that people in Facebook, when their feeds were a little bit cheerier or a little bit less cheery, they went on to infect people around them. Mm -hmm. And in just a week in this Facebook experiment, a small number of initial people wound up affecting the emotion, spreading emotional contagion to 680,000 people other Facebook users. Okay, so you, you aren't just this isolated individual, you're part of a whole, and you are spreading something all around you every day. So love yourself, love yourself enough to meditate, anchor yourself, don't ignore the news, read it once a day or once a week, that's usually enough to know what's going on in the world. And then love yourself enough to center yourself and fill yourself with self-love every single day. Don't make anything more important than feeling good. We want to feel good. Addict yourself to all of that serotonin, dopamine, anandamide, and all those other pleasure chemicals. Go into those states of ecstasy. Do it once every morning for at least 20 minutes or 30 minutes, that's a really good baseline. If you have time on the weekend, spend an hour or two, just making yourself feel really wonderful. Then you start to be that agent of emotional contagion all around you and everything starts to change. My my life, my work changed, money changed, my relationships changed, my health changed, everything changed. The day, and I tell the story in one of the chapters in Bliss Brain, the day I made the commitment to meditate Every single day I made that commitment and within a year, my entire life had changed. So love yourself enough to make that commitment. When I'm doing a keynote speech, when I'm doing a live workshop and I now do them virtually, I have people raise their hands if they'll commit to a daily meditation practice. And when I do that at the end of you know, a Zoom workshop or a virtual workshop, everyone raises their hands. So make that commitment. It's your commitment to yourself And then what'll happen is not just good things around you and good things in your head, really good things will happen to your health. Mm -hmm. In Bliss Brain, I talk about the health effects of this. And just for example, one 30 year study showed that optimists live on average 10 years longer than pessimists. Wow! So now every day you're optimistic, you're loving, you're joyful, you're kind, you're altruistic. That's gonna add at least 10 years to your life. If you look at the other studies on altruism and positivity and so on, it's dramatic. Another study found that negative thinking literally is linked to the buildup of beta amyloid Alzheimer's plaques in the brain and the less negative thinking, the less beta amyloid Alzheimer's plaques in those patients' brains. So you are literally changing your brain and then you're changing your longevity outlook dramatically 10 years more at the end of your life to play with your grandchildren or great grandchildren or travel the world or do needlepoint or volunteer at a soup kitchen or whatever it is you want to do. But again, you deserve that. And if you are giving your consciousness over to the news and to all the negative stuff out there, really using this most precious gift of awareness, to just hand it over to other people who don't have your best interest in in heart. So claim your power, meditate, center yourself in non-local mind, bliss out every morning, and then you approach your day as this inspired creator, able to make all these changes in the world and solve complicated problems, and suddenly everything shifts. So be that agent of emotional contagion for you and for those around you. Uh,
0: Look, Dawson, Absolutely. I, I just can't support what you've said enough because I I agree with you. And it's it all comes down to our, our choice of where we put our focus, where we put our attention and our awareness, isn't it? So and we've got a choice every single minute of every day. Do we watch the news or not? Do I check my Facebook feed or not? And then how and, and what am I seeing on that? And how am I responding to that? But you're right. It comes down to my choice about what I want to do. And I love this idea of being positively emotionally contagious i think (laughs) it's a gift to ourselves and then everyone around us so and i have to say it's been my that's been my experience because i like you i had a conscious decision i made a conscious decision that uh things needed to completely change in my life and part of that was meditation part of some other practices i do around that and everything shifted as a result of that awareness and Life's so much better
1: on this side, I have to say. Yeah, I talk about how I used to be a very unhappy person when I was a teenager. I was wretchedly miserable, depressed, anxious, I had PTSD. And then I'm, you know, now I just wake up happy every day and I stay happy most of the day and I go to bed happy every night. So I've had an unhappy brain and a happy brain. and I can tell you, having had both experiences, happy is better.
0: it certainly is and i I want to actually if you've got a couple of minutes i just did want to ask that question you're doing work with people with ptsd can you speak to any of i guess any experiments or any studies that you've done in that space in terms of how perhaps the meditation and the eft have helped with ptsd because i think this again is something that we're hearing more about in our society there's ptsd and then now complex ptsd Just anything you wanted to share on that before we close?
1: Yeah, and so the bulk of my, I've been involved in around 100 clinical trials in some way or another, and about 20 as as a primary investigator. And so a lot of those trials were about PTSD, tackling the problem of human suffering at its worst, uh, refugees, war veterans, people have been displaced by natural disasters and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm not sitting here talking to you as a guy who was raised in an ivory tower is everything easy. That's why I wanted to talk about the fire in, in Bliss brain. And so we, we, we work with these veterans, we work with these refugees and we study them. And again, they have high levels of these symptoms like flashbacks and nightmares, terrifying intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, what, waiting for the next thing, bad thing to happen around them. And then after they do, on average, six sessions of EFT. Six, only six. Six, six one-hour sessions. That's all I do, and then those symptoms go down to a tiny fraction. They're no longer diagnosable with PTSD of what they were when we measure their levels of symptomatology three months, six months, a year down the road. They're still fine. They lose those symptoms and they stay, way in, in the new in the new configuration. So. PTSD is curable. That's one of the things I'm gonna talk about in the new book a little bit in my other two books, but um, depression, anxiety. If you look at the research on EFT and some of the research on effective forms of meditation, like eco-meditation, levels of traumatic stress, of depression, of anxiety, of phobias, of all the things that rob people of their, of their inner serenity, those plummet. I mean, they go down 50% for those veterans they went down an average of 65% those symptoms did. And so we no longer need to deal with PTSD and you have to do that work. You can't just ascend to being St. Francis or being St. Teresa or being Ramakrishna and leave your trauma untouched. Research shows you have to go there and work on that. So half my workshops aren't on this brain and meditation. There on getting down in the trenches into the subconscious and the suffering self into the dark side of of the personality and healing PTSD, you got to do both things, you got to both transcend, do that kind of work, and then you have to do the nitty gritty of cleaning up your past, facing your past and healing it so you can then move to those transcendent states without the dark side dragging you down.
0: What a, I think that's just fantastic, Dawson, because you're right. If there's trauma trapped in the body, we can't transcend. No matter how much we would like to, it's still there to be dealt with, isn't it? Um, but I think what I'm hearing you saying, this is my understanding of EFT and my exposure to it, EFT, if you're thinking about dealing with your past and the having a dark night of the soul, EFT is a very gentle intervention, isn't it, compared to perhaps other, other interventions, but sounds like it's very effective.
1: Very gentle and um, it can be done safely by on your own. And that's one of the really key characteristics of EFT. It's a self-help method. Now you may well benefit from, from work with a therapist doing EFT with you or doing EFT on yourself with another kind of therapy. But yeah, EFT is easy, quick, safe, gentle. Again, six sessions is not a big commitment to make and that is what is able to, to release most PTSD symptoms
0: fantastic well what a wonderful gift you give us with that work as well so it's you're, you're just the, uh, the the researcher and the writer and the thinker that just keep, that keeps on giving to all of us Dawson so I'd like to say thank you so much for spending your time your precious time with us today you have shared so much and your work is truly groundbreaking in all areas so thank you very much for giving this time to us where would you like people to go to find out to connect with you and to find out more about what you're doing
1: well there are a number of places but probably the most useful place is um if you're in australia go to dawson my name gift d-a-w-s-o and dawson and there are links on that site for a free immunity meditation we've done two clinical trials showing that these methods boost your level of antibodies that protect you from viruses so that's that's the one thing that i think people will find find very useful also to get a discount or a free copy of my book bliss brain uh, on that site as well and that's just dawsongift.com so go there and then you also get a free copy of the eft tapping mini manual at dawsongift.com so go there get those three things there are links to other places like our work with veterans like uh, our um, other health recommendations there a group of other things you'll get you'll get there but those those two things are really worth getting the immunity the immunity um, meditation and that bliss brain or EFT manual and then just try these methods feel them in your body and you will very quickly see if they're working for you
0: fantastic well thank you so much and very generous of you to offer those things so Thank you for your time, Dawson, today, and I will look forward to speaking with you when your next book comes out.
1: Jen, all the best and thanks again.
0: And to you, and to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Your Freedom Unlimited. If you like this show, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, Subscribe, rate and review Your Freedom Unlimited on your favourite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, you can reach me directly at jenramsey.com. Thanks for listening.